Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This week, in just his second year in office, President Donald Trump tapped his second Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, a judge on the D.C. Federal Circuit Court. The impact of President Trump's judicial appointments will be felt by Americans across society for decades to come. And in the Jewish world, Trump's most recent nomination to the Supreme Court received a mixed reception. Some groups welcomed it, some expressed concern, and some, like AJC, are calling for a thorough examination of Kavanaugh's legal writings, political history, and approach to judicial precedent. Joining us in the studio to discuss this nominee is AJC General Counsel Mark Stern. After getting his JD from Columbia Law School, Mark devoted his career to becoming the leading expert in legal advocacy on issues of concern to the Jewish community. Mark has authored numerous briefs and bills and has argued four cases before the Supreme Court. Mark, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Judge Brett Kavanaugh has been likened to Forrest Gump for his knack for popping up in every major legal drama of the past 20 years, from Ken Starr's investigation into President Clinton to the Florida recount in 2000 to President George W. Bush's appointment of current Chief Justice John Roberts. He's been everywhere. That's Kavanaugh the meme. Can you tell us a bit about Kavanaugh the man? Everything that's been written about him that I've seen uh, is that he's a very able, diligent judge, well-liked by everybody, has, uh, has had clerks who don't agree with him. Uh, not every judge is willing to do that. He did. Um, when hears personal stories about how kind he is and how dedicated he is. Uh, so I think those issues are largely going to be off the table uh, this time. Of course, one never knows what the confirmation process will turn up. Uh, we've had surprises over the years, Anita Hill, uh, going back even further, Justice Goldberg. Anita Hill famously Anita being. being. the one who accused uh, Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. Um, there were ethics violations that came up in the Abe Fortas nomination. So the process does turn up things from time to time. Um, but Though everything both, that's Both re- of those people were confirmed ultimately. No, Goldberg, Goldberg – uh, I'm sorry, not Goldberg, Fortas the second time was not confirmed. He was going to be chief justice and the ethics – uh, issues that arose killed his his nomination. Um, so, uh, and and of course, there are still those who think that Clarence Thomas shouldn't have been confirmed. And uh, just recently, in the wake of the Me Too movement, people have called on him to resign because he wouldn't be confirmed today. So uh, that caveat is important because you just that the, there is a purpose to the process, and it sometimes turns things up. But everything that's been written about Judge Kavanaugh till now makes that seem very unlikely. And this is going to be a debate about ideology and how nominations are made to the Supreme Court and control of the court and its destiny for the next 10 to 20 years. So you bring up ideology and President Trump during the election famously had this list of 25 or so judges who he or or, or not. They aren't all currently judges. I think one is a sitting senator, uh, but 25 or so legal personalities who he— Legal and personalities don't usually go together, but okay. <laughs> who he pledged to draw from for Supreme Court appointments. Why did Judge Kavanaugh merit a spot on that list? I, I think by anybody's uh, standards, 
Judge Kavanaugh's in the band of people who would be considered for the Supreme Court by a conservative Republican center. There's really no question of the man's qualifications, abilities, uh, clarity of writing, all, all the things. Uh, nobody's accused him of being intemperate on the bench. Um, and, and so it's not surprising that he's there. I mean, this is not uh, the way Nixon went to Judge Carswell, who nobody would ever heard of and with good reason, uh, to the Supreme Court, or Harriet Myers in the Bush administration. This is somebody who has the technical capacity to be a justice of the Supreme Court at a time when the court is functioning intellectually at a very high level. They're, they're all very able. We don't have weak links on this court. My understanding of that list, though, is that it was more about reassuring the base that a President Trump, you know, then candidate Trump was promising that should he be elected, he would appoint kind of bona fide conservatives. So is there something about Judge Kavanaugh's ideology or, or rulings that have kind of earned him that seal of approval? You know, he, he's been around, as you pointed out, in, in many disputes. Uh, he's earned his spurs in conservative Republican circles. His judging in the uh, District of Columbia Circuit reflects the ideological concerns of conservatives in the United States at the moment. Um, that, that's a court that doesn't have the ordinary run of cases. Uh, if you're in the Sixth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit, you get voting rights cases, you get, you know, you get abortion disputes, you get all sorts of stuff comes across your desk. The D.C. Circuit is a little bit different. Occasionally, those cases pop up in the District of Columbia, but mostly cases in the District of Columbia or about the administrative work uh, of the United States. Challenges to what the EPA, EPA can does, do. Or the civil rights agencies do. Uh, they have some jurisdiction over certain kinds of Voting Rights Act cases, but it, it's a smaller piece of the work than it is, let's say, in the 11th Circuit, which covers the South. But very significant for those people who care about administrative power. One of the great debates now in our country politically is what role for the administrative state, what role for the courts in supervising the administrative state. How much deference should we give when an agency interprets a vague statute and Congress has a knack for passing vague and ambiguous statutes, often because they can't reach consensus on how to resolve difficult questions, so they kick the can down the road. So the agency comes in with an interpretation. It's an arguable interpretation of the statute, but not necessarily the best interpretation of statute. What should the courts do in that case? How much legitimacy should we give to the administrative state, which is an indispensable feature of contemporary government, yet it's not mentioned in the Constitution, and it's not always consistent with democratic norms, sometimes in favor of business, sometimes against business, sometimes in favor of environmental protection, sometimes against. But the administrative agencies are sort of a world unto themselves, and it's become very much an issue of contention between conservatives and liberals how much deference to give the administrative state. And Judge Kavanaugh has enunciated a view that the courts ought to be not quite as generous as some minister of lawyers would be in passing on their regulations, particularly when they're reading ambiguous statutes by Congress. AJC put out a press release this week containing your statement on the nomination. In it, you mentioned that AJC has been engaging with the Supreme Court since 1925 mm -hmm. when, we, uh, when we wrote our first amicus brief. What is the importance of the Supreme Court to the American Jewish community? So it varies over time. At a time in 1925 and really through the 80s, Jews found themselves often in small communities and they weren't often sure of themselves. They were not confident 
of their place in those societies. And so it became important when rights were at issue, claims of rights were at issue, not only for Jews, but for other small groups in the society, often victims of, of discrimination, as Jews were really through the 50s, uh, that there be an independent tribunal that's not tied to the locality, that's not part of the local power structure, that's able to enforce rights for unpopular or small groups. And the Supreme Court historically has played that role, or at least it does in the imagination of the American Jewish community. And so the school prayer cases, the segregation cases, the cases against restrictive covenants, which means that private real estate developers would agree or people in the neighborhood would agree that we're going to keep out Jews and blacks. Those were never going to be thrown out by local courts, but the Supreme Court did throw them out. It made a big difference as to where Jews could live. Uh, discrimination by educational institutions. Also, you need the courts which are not part of the local power structure, um, to be able to say so. And so the Supreme Court has become, uh, for Jews, a sort of hope, that, uh, a place where rights will be vindicated. And to that extent, today, the disputes over, for example, abortion become important. The Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter and sets the tone in the rules. There are still those who would roll back the school prayer decisions and, and inject sectarianism into the schools. Again, we have come to expect that the Supreme Court somewhat removed geographically from local emotions around these issues is a better refuge than, uh, than local courts or local legislative or administrative institutions. Whether that is entirely true to this day, we've had 20, 25 years of a fairly conservative court which has by no means rolled back you know, the liberal decisions of the 60s, but has certainly not expanded them. And, and the Jewish community's place in society is different. So whether it's still true exactly that the Supreme Court is as important as it was 30 or 40 years ago is, I suppose, a debatable proposition. Nevertheless, the court has a huge influence on American life. Uh, while everybody's focused on abortion and school prayer and the like and, and the, the limits of religious liberty, you know, the extent of the administrative state makes a huge difference in an age of global warming where the administration is hostile to lots of regulation of business. Those questions become important to American citizens. Questions of how the voting system will work, gerrymanders, access to the ballot, those are important to all Americans. And, and so while I'm not sure that the Jewish community is quite as reliant on the Supreme Court as it once was, the American community writ large surely is. So what does AJC look for today in a Supreme Court nominee? So it's rare that we intrude ourselves into judicial nominations. Um, we've decided over many years that this is not a place where we need to be heard. You, you say rare. I mean, never, right? Uh, almost never. One could imagine. Uh, historically some, never. Histori um, I don't know historically if we've never intervened. One could imagine, particularly at the lower court level, somebody who has racist leanings or has made – uh, misogynist comments, and those people still pop up on the federal bench. You might oppose somebody like that. I don't think we've ever commented in opposition to a Supreme Court not nominee. In, not in recent years, mm -hmm. at any rate, and not neither for nor against. We, we simply abstain. In a way, this is going to sound dreamlike because what you really want is somebody who's independent, 
who's prepared, who's not empty-headed, comes with views, right? You're not qualified to be on the Supreme Court if you haven't thought of the major constitutional and administrative law and other legal issues that confront the court, but but is prepared to be open-minded, fair, listens to both sides, and can be persuaded. In an ideal world, those are the sorts of judges and justices we would have. That train left the station a long time ago. For as long as I can remember, uh, in my legal career, the judiciary has been politicized by both sides. Uh, Both sides have litmus tests. You're against Roe, you're for Roe. Your Brown v. Board was correctly decided as a legal matter, incorrectly decided. And this has been going on for a long time, but it's only getting worse. So while we remain committed to that vision of the Supreme Court, it's hard to find very many other people who are committed to that that vision of the court. But I think it serves an important purpose to recall to people that this is not the Republicans versus the Democrats. This is picking uh, a justice who's a member of the court of last resort. And, And we deserve something better than politics as usual, whether from the left or the right. Under current circumstances, some of the greats of Supreme Court history probably couldn't get nominated and probably couldn't get confirmed. And that that's a matter of great regret. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mark, but reading your statement the other day, it sounded like there was perhaps a note of reservation around Judge Kavanaugh. The note of reservation, I think, is not personal to Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, as I said, I don't think there's anything surprising in Judge Kavanaugh. And all the, all the things that I've read so far have been of a very decent human being and somebody who takes the art of judging seriously and and scrupulously. The note of regret is that you don't want to be naive. This is not a nomination because Justice Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh, is head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, There's a large dose of ideology here. If Hillary had won the election in 2016, there would be a large dose of ideology in somebody who was filling an empty seat as well. And so the regret is largely that. His views are not always in accord with where AJC would come out. You know, it helps to win cases to have judges <laughs> who, who lean your way. But I think the greater regret is the politicization of the whole process and the recognition that as good as he is, he's not there only or even primarily because he's as good as he is. It's because he also represents a I personally would have the same reservations if we had a mirror image from the left because that's what appealed to the other party's political or constitutional vision. So uh, what about the hot-button issues that are being discussed around this nomination? Does the Jewish community have an opinion on reproductive rights, on health care access, on free speech, on you know any of these things that are being held up as potential litmus tests for the nominee? So the Jewish community, uh, by and large, with the exception of the Orthodox community, it has been for a very long time, really even long before Roe v. Wade, very liberal on matters of uh, sexual freedom. The Jews were the most liberal group in the country. Till very recently, we were more liberal than atheists on, on abortion, on contraception access. Sometimes I refer to Jews as inverse Mormons. <laughs> Nothing against the Mormons, but they're the most reliably right-wing voters. And, and Jews, especially on social issues, are perhaps reliably left-wing. And it's been true for a very long time. Um, the issues... well, So on school prayer, we have a long enunciated position... Uh, in opposition to, to prayer in, in public schools, we've opposed pretty unanimously. Even the Orthodox community has never been very happy. 
possible exception of the Chabad movement, about religious symbols on public land. There are disagreements clearly about eight to parochial schools, but those have not surfaced yet in this nomination very much. There are real deep-seated differences in the Jewish community about the extent of religious liberty. The disputes that have surfaced recently about pharmacists not dispensing contraceptives because they have a moral objection to it, a florist or baker's not participating in same-sex marriage, Catholic hospitals not performing abortions. Those religious liberty issues divide the Jewish community. But in general, one can speak of Jews being on the liberal side of all but the religious liberty issues where we're more closely divided. Um, As I say, those issues are important. They're even very important. Health care is another issue, but there the Jewish community as a whole has been less involved in its organizational form. But there are all these other issues out there about access to voting rights, where Jews, again, generally have been in favor of broad access to the ballot and opposed to to gerrymandering. And the administrative law issues, which are crucially important in the next couple of – the next decade for certain, those issues also loom large here and there. The Jewish community has – uh, has not been an active participant. So uh, what comes next? What's the step-by-step of the confirmation process from here on out? So the Senate committee will be looking at everything Justice Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh wrote or thought or even thought about thinking about <laughs> uh, uh, you know, very carefully, and people will be looking for anything they can either use to beat Judge Kavanaugh over the head or the president over the head or the Democrats over the head. I remember when Judge Bork was up for nomination, a big issue was made of notes he gave of his speech, which were written down on the back of a napkin. Obviously, while he was being introduced, he jotted down (laughs) some notes, and those became grist for the mill. And he was famously the first person to be borked. Well, he was borked, right? Uh, meaning, and, meaning that his that his nomination was was, was, was spiked by the Democrats. Right. Uh, it was somewhat funny to see uh, Democratic senators, which is what it was at the time, arguing constitutional law with just Judge Bork and pronouncing that he didn't know what he was talking about. When obviously. He knew what he was talking about. They didn't, but it was purely ideological. That's not to say I supported Bork's nomination, but these things sometimes look like theater rather than serious debates about constitutional That will go on. Uh, they'll look at every aspect of his life. I assume there'll be, in, in today's environment, somebody will be looking to see if there's any Me Too issues. Uh, I, I can't imagine the White House didn't look hard at that, but maybe they didn't, or maybe they didn't turn somebody up. Um, And then there'll be hearings, Um, and the hearings are generally not very illuminating. There are legitimate reasons why nominees cannot say how they would vote in particular issues. Every judge who's had a confirmation hearing, as long as I can remember, has taken the same view. They cannot say how they will vote, um, but there'll be efforts along those lines. And then there'll be a lot of probing here particularly because Justice Kennedy was perceived as a swing vote, uh, there's going to be a lot of questioning uh, about will he respect, will Judge Kavanaugh respect president? Does he come to the bench, as we put it in our press release, does he come to the bench with an agenda of overturning this decision, that decision, a third decision, uh, or does he build organically on what's been done before, even as he might go in slightly different directions? I think that uh, you will hear references to stare decisis or precedent. It means stare decisis Latin for the thing is decided. Precedent means the impact 
prior decisions have on current decision-making. Um, everybody acknowledges it's a little less binding on the Supreme Court than on everybody else. Um, there's some sense, many people believe that it's less binding in constitutional law than in statutory law because Congress can change his statute, it can change the Constitution easily. But there'll be a lot of probing of where he is on, on that issue. And there, Scalia and Thomas, for instance, were in very different places. Justice Thomas doesn't really give much weight to stare decisis constitutional cases. And, and Justice Scalia used to joke about himself that he was not up to just Justice Thomas's standards. He believed that precedent <laughs> in some measure bound the, the judge. Uh, and But, you know, you go back to the Warren Court and the criticism of the Warren Court was that they weren't respectful uh, of precedent. So that that's what will happen next. And then everybody will count every single vote in the Senate because the Senate is not so solidly in Republican hands and, and uh, unfortunately, Senator McCain is – I don't know how he would vote, but he's not necessarily going to be available. Uh, so it's, it, it will be can you hold on to every Democratic senator? Can you hold on to every Republican senator? And that's how this is going to go. It's going to be – I believe unless – again, something turns up that, that hasn't yet. This is going to be a, a nasty political fight. You mentioned precedent, and I just want to stay on that for a moment because I think there's this really interesting phenomenon uh, when we talk about the court where liberal justices are often um, called maybe tarred as uh, activist uh, judges, justices, whereas famously, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts in his confirmation hearings talked about, well, my job is just to call balls and strikes. So uh, conservatives on the court have kind of branded themselves successfully as, you know, oh, we're the ones who are just trying to keep things as they are, to stick to precedent, to follow the Constitution. Liberal justices are the ones who are trying to push the envelope, trying to change things, trying to remake society. Do you think that that perception is changing? Do you think that there's a conservative judicial movement that is now um, just as activist uh, as any as any liberal judges have been in the past? I've never been a fan of the activist, umpire, uh, uh, passive virtues, to use a famous phrase, uh, distinction in trying to categorize judges uh, in that way. Um, take hate speech. Uh, is a judge or justice who votes to protect hate speech, an activist beyond what the Founding Fathers intended the Free Speech Clause to do. Uh, if somebody argues that the Equal Protection Clause to make sure that minorities feel comfortable in, in public institutions uh, and argues for the suppression of speech, are they being an activist for equality or are they being weak on freedom of speech? I don't think this discussion gets us uh, very far. I start with the premise that the cases that get to the Supreme Court are by and large very hard. That, that's why they're – mostly that's why they're there. <laughs> yes, there are occasionally cases, not in the large constitutional issues. That there are statutory cases where the lower courts have gone awry for some reason and the Supreme Court needs to fix it and so those are unanimous. So those may be easy cases. But by and large, the constitutional cases that come to the court are hard. They're hard because we don't know necessarily what the founders talked meant. We, the text doesn't really directly address the question and often because they're completing claims, completing, competing visions of what free speech means in, in a society committed to equal protection. Um, 
the abortion cases raise difficult questions. Abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. For many years, abortion was regulated by the government. How does the court decide in 1973 that what's been accepted till now without a constitutional text uh, is unacceptable? Uh, The death penalty is – the administration of the death penalty in the United States is nothing short of a disaster. Um, There are those who argue that it's cruel at this point. It's unusual. It's decreasing in frequency and therefore violates the ban on cruel and unusual punishment. But the text of the Constitution clearly contemplates the death penalty. It talks about people being deprived of life with due process of law. So what's the role of the judge in, in those cases? Those are not easy questions and for people I find it particularly frustrating when people say, well, it's Justice Black famously used to say it's right here in the Constitution. Everybody go looking. You know, it doesn't say anything about this case. (laughs) So so how would you know that? Um, These are hard cases and legitimately people can disagree about about their outcome. Uh, Often uh, on both sides, right and left, uh, conservative and liberal, assume that their vision of the good life must be embodied in the Constitution. It's inconceivable that the Constitution doesn't protect reproductive choice. It's inconceivable the Constitution doesn't protect the fetus's right to live. People assert those claims in good faith, uh, but those are hard claims for a judge unless he or she is going to substitute uh, his own vision of the world. It's hard to adjudicate those cases and reasonable people uh, will disagree. Uh, I've, I heard, I won't mention who, but I heard a justice of the court recently say that if they were royalty, there would be no death penalty in the United States, but they're merely a judge. The Constitution contemplates it. So you go along with it. Um, and that, you know, but, but to listen to advocates on both sides increasingly, that's not the right attitude. There's certainty in these matters. And I... I'm not smart enough to see the certainty. Well, now that I've asked you to prognosticate a little bit about the future and, and you've given us this uh, this valuable history lesson on jurisprudence, let's close with a relatively easy question Uh-oh. about the past. What will be the legacy of retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy? How will history remember this man? So I, I guess since he's not dead yet, the more the, the, uh, the you know, the phrase about not speaking ill of the dead doesn't apply. <laughs> uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it depends on who writes the history. On the one hand, liberals will credit him with saving some form of affirmative action, uh, some form of the Fair Housing Act, and of course, most famously, the same-sex marriage and, and uh, gay rights issues. Um, conservatives will vilify him for lacking any clear sense of jurisprudence. Uh, and, and, and just yielding to popular sentiment. I don't think anybody thinks he will go down as one of the great theoreticians of, uh, in the court's history. Uh, I don't think, you know, there are clearly better writers on the court. Uh, how much all that matters and how much matters which result – did you come to the right result in my view or not – it depends on how you view a justice. If you think a justice needs to articulate a clear judicial, judicial or constitutional philosophy, if they need to be a brilliant writer, he won't be amongst the greats. Uh, if you think um, that what matters is you got things right or you made them as right as you could given all the contextual factors around you, including who your colleagues were, 
then he's going to come out much better for liberals and much worse uh, <laughs> for conservatives. Um, you know, on criminal justice, he was, for instance, a mixed bag. He tended to be very favorable towards the government in criminal cases, except that he was something of a prison reformer. Um, so, you know, in part, again, it's going to depend in part on who's writing the history. And we'll have to see where the court is 20 or 15 or 20 years from now. It may look like he was a beacon of hope uh, in, in a dark era. It may be that he'll be looked at as just a curiosity of the time. Well, a complicated history for Kennedy and unclear future for Kavanaugh. Mark, thank you very much for joining us and, and sharing your insights with us today. My pleasure. Our next guest is University of Minnesota President Eric Kaler. With over 50,000 students and a world-class research enterprise, the University of Minnesota is a force to be reckoned with in higher education. And President Kaler is a world-class higher education administrator, not to mention a brilliant chemical engineer. In recognition of these accomplishments, he was elected in 2014 to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Recently, through AJC Project Interchange, President Kaler and I traveled to Israel with a delegation of university presidents from across the U.S. We visited a number of Israeli institutions of higher learning, learned about Israeli society, and got a better understanding of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be able to be with you. So we were just in Israel, and I had a blast, and I'm glad you were there. But why did you decide to go on AJC's Project Interchange, and what do you feel like you got out of the experience? Well, I decided to go because uh, I'm curious about world affairs, and certainly uh, there aren't very many places that are more complicated in the world than uh, than the Middle East. So it was <laughs> an opportunity to, uh, to learn, uh, to be with experts and get a, a pretty diverse collection of points of view, and I took away from it, uh, as they say, it's complicated. I think <laughs> many of us in the group uh, had a, you know, an idea uh, at some level about what the situation was, but the, uh, the complexity, the pushes and pulls, uh, the difficulty of finding uh, solutions that, uh, that make sense and are acceptable to all parties uh, is, is really high, and so that was my main takeaway. Anything in particular that struck you? Well, I think uh, many of us, and, and certainly I, uh, thought a two-state uh, solution was uh, a relatively uh, straightforward uh, way to at least make some make some progress. And uh, as we learned from uh, experts on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side of that conversation, uh, it is not so simple. And uh, the the, uh, the the built infrastructure, the the settlements, the the uh, uh, dynamic that would need to be untangled and straightened is really uh, uh, is really difficult. So we walked away with, at least I walked away with a better understanding of the realities of what a two-state solution would look like, and and also the realities of and the difficulties of a one-state solution. So, uh, as I said, it uh, amplified the complexity. While we were there, we met with presidents of four Israeli institutions, uh, the Technion Tel Aviv University, Ben-Gurion University, and Bar-Ilan University. Did you learn anything about Israeli higher education that you think American higher ed can learn from? 
Well, that's a great question, and because I've had a long interaction with research uh, faculty members uh, at several institutions uh, for for decades when I was doing science actively, uh, I had a pretty good understanding of how uh, those institutions work and the the quality of education that they provide uh, for for students and in the structure in which they do that. So I would say that I didn't particularly learn anything that I. Uh, I didn't know, but uh, I was impressed by the uh, effectiveness of which they uh, they get their work done, uh, the, the sort of research impact per uh, per shekel or per dollar at a place <laughs> like the Technion is really is really quite uh, remarkable. So uh, I was impressed by that. What about the potential for partnerships? Do you see the University of Minnesota working on any future initiatives with Israeli universities? Well, we're always uh, open to that, and my experience through the years is that those really effective uh, collaborations uh, almost always start with uh, faculty exchanges, with with students and postdocs going back and forth, and really building from a a ground-up organic uh, collaboration. Uh, It uh, is less successful, uh, typically, uh, when guys wearing uh, suits and ties sit around a big table and (laughs) and sign papers and and say, we're going to do something. Uh, You need to have that uh, that organic, uh, ground-up, integrated uh, history together uh, before collaborations really blossom. And so uh, I certainly am open uh, to that uh, that happening here and would do my best to facilitate our faculty uh, who would want to make those kind of connections. Eric, let's bring it back to the states. On many American campuses, there is growing student activism that is hostile towards Israel. What do you think of this trend and to what extent does it exist at the University of Minnesota? Well, we, uh, like most places, have had uh, instances of, uh, uh, of discrimination and of, uh, of hateful speech uh, on many sides uh, of this issue. And I have uh, condemned uh, anti-Muslim speak and, and speech and uh, anti-Islam uh, speech. Islamophobia is, uh, is something that we see here. And I've also condemned uh, speech that's been critical of, uh, of Israel and of the Jewish faith. And so... My my prescription uh, here is that uh, if you hear speech that you don't like, uh, the cure for that is is more speech, more dialogue, more uh, bridge building, more attempts to understand and and communicate, and and we try to provide um, that kind of uh, framework here. But uh, as is as is seen across the country, uh, these kind of um, uh, hateful, uh, discriminatory uh, uh, comments and actions are made here. So if you're someone who's in favor of dialogue, is it fair to guess that you would probably not be in favor of those pushing for an academic boycott of Israel? That's a very safe statement. I've made <laughs> strong statements about uh, uh, the fact that, that the boycott in in any sense, to take take the, the Israeli side out of it, uh, we should be a marketplace of ideas, of an exchange of a point of view, a place where scholars from all over the world come and and, and learn, and we uh, in turn learn from them. And uh, a boycott is uh, the anthema of that. And I would uh, continue to speak strongly uh, against a uh, uh, an approach to really any kind of of, of dispute that involves a, a boycott. I read your statement back in March of this year when BDS was coming up as an issue at the University of Minnesota, and I thought it was excellent. I commend it to our listeners, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes. 
I also thought, frankly, that it was uh, morally courageous. I think that it's it's not an easy thing for someone in your position to do to take such a strong stand on any issue, let alone an issue that that you described at the top of this interview as something that is particularly fraught. Did you have reservations about coming out strongly on the issue? No, I really did not, Zephy. It was uh, it was important to me to be really clear about uh, what the institution stands for, and frankly, about what I uh, stand for. Uh, our core values are around academic freedom, uh, academic freedom, and our our commitment uh, to a free exchange of ideas. And you know, we have to be about that. We can't be um, in a situation where we are closing off um, people or points of view because we we don't agree with them. We've got to you know, you've got to have a dialogue. That's how that's how you make progress. And if we don't do that and and let people become uh, solidified in their silos, then uh we'll never make progress. So, um you know, certainly some some groups were unhappy uh with me for the I'd say clarity of the point of view, but uh I think it's the right thing to do. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? The World Cup, good for the Jews? Once you subtract the Jewish populations of the U.S., Israel, and Canada, three of the world's four largest, it turns out that barely 10% of the world's Jewish population lives in a country that even qualified for the 2018 FIFA World Cup. But that doesn't mean that Jews aren't going soccer crazy during this quadrennial tournament. When France and Croatia face off in the final on Sunday, you will be hearing the most prominent Jewish voice in soccer, assuming you're watching the Spanish-language broadcast on Telemundo. Andres Cantor is a superstar across Latin America for his several seconds-long goal call after every score. That man is iconic. So, in a way, no matter who scores... No matter who wins, the World Cup is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.